0: Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, is a chronic condition affecting the gastrointestinal tract. At present, the cause of IBD is unknown, however, there are associative factors, such as stress, genetics, environment, and microorganisms. For each patient diagnosed with IBD, nobody really knows for sure what's directly causing it, so the aim in the management is to maintain the patient in a state of remission so that they can live comfortably and the goal is directed towards improving the quality of life. My name is Ed, and in this Nurse Talks podcast, join me as we review the disease called inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, is a chronic, non-specific inflammatory disorder of the gastrointestinal tract. And there are two major types of IBD. You have the Crohn's disease and the other one is ulcerative colitis. The difference between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is on the inflammation that's affecting the gastrointestinal tract. The characteristics themselves, like for example for the Crohn's disease, Crohn's disease the inflammation can occur in patches in the GI tract and this can occur in any part of the GI tract starting from the mouth to the anus so it's really possible that for Crohn's disease patients there could be let's say inflammation in the mouth then there's an inflammation in the esophagus inflammation in the stomach and then inflammation in the intestine as for the ulcerative colitis the inflammation tends to be more on the large intestine or in the large bowel and that is the, one of the main descriptions that would categorize the differences between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Both are inflammatory bowel disease types, but the the location of the inflammation tends to be a differentiation between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Of course, there are other differences as well with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, such as like the extent of the inflammation, So Crohn's disease tends to affect the deeper layers of the bowel because the bowel wall, that has several layers. So in Crohn's disease, in some cases, the inflammation can extend to the deeper layers of the bowel wall. Compare that to the ulcerative colitis, the inflammation tends to be more superficial. In some cases, there are instances where the physician and as well as the lab personnel because usually in the diagnosis of IBD it will involve uh, like uh, histology studies uh, because uh, to in order to diagnose IBD sometimes the physician may require a patient to undergo a procedure called an endoscopy or colonoscopy or fleximoid sigmoidoscopy what they usually do is they View the bowel, view view the bowel through a a tube with a light, and from here they can see the inflammation, and from that they also collect a tissue sample called a biopsy, and this gets examined in the lab. So in some cases there will be some difficulties in determining if is the inflammation really of Crohn's disease, or is the inflammation really of ulcerative colitis, because as much as we have given a description as to what differentiates Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. In practice, it's really more complicated than that. But if the histology is different, it's difficult for the the histology personnel to determine the type. In some cases, that does occur. So they will diagnose it as indeterminate colitis, meaning they're not sure if is it really of the Crohn's disease type or is it of the ulcerative colitis type the causes of ibd are still largely unknown we do have associative causes so meaning these are causes that they associate to be uh, something that may cause or may be the reason why ibd occurred but in essence it's still not really determined these are the associative causes so far when you read literature about IBD, so some of the more strong associative causes include genetics. So there are a lot of gene genetic. Uh, there are ha- there are a lot of factors under genetics that have been considered to have a strong influence in the um, in the development of IBD. So one of this is the NOD2 gene. So they say if there's an effect in the Nod2 gene, this tends to be uh, an associated cause for the development of Crohn's disease. Nod2 stands for Nucleotide Binding Oligomerization Domain Containing Protein 2 gene. So this is just one of the genes, like if there's a defect, so this is just one of the genes that have been associated to be a cause for IBD. However, if you really review the literature, there are many many genes that have been associated to like if there's a defect to those genes, there have been there have there are many that have been named to be also associated to cause uh, IBD if there's a defect into that. So that's the genetic factor. There is also environmental factor. So they say that IBD may Be precipitated as a result of stress or stressful environment it could also be associated to gut microbiota so of course we have microorganisms in our intestines they live there and they are they take part in digestion but in some cases they say that in some cases there could be a lack of certain microorganisms and that has led to the development of ibd although these are just theories these are studies uh, many studies actually have been made uh, with regards to this and another is it could be also uh, other causes could be from the diet so many factors have been really studied to be seen as an associative factor for ibd but as of present At present, nobody really knows what what cause is directly causing the IBD for each patient. Because for patients with IBD, many factors really play. Genetics, um, environment, gut microbiota, uh, host immune responses, infection, medications, the immune system because IBD is an auto, is the pathophysiology of it, is something that is autoimmune. So meaning it's our own body actually attacking a part of the body, in this case it's the intestines. So it's really quite complex if you really think about it, but those are the associative factors. IBD tends to be more common in the age ages 15 to 30. So this seems to be the age of onset for IBD. It's around 15 to 30, but it can occur in any age group. So it can occur, uh, there are kids who have been diagnosed with IBD. There are teenagers who have been diagnosed with IBD. Adults, definitely there are uh, adults that have been diagnosed with IBD. Uh, And these are just statistics. Another uh, thing that has been really interesting to take note is that they say that IBD tends to be more common in the more developed countries. There are many theories that they try to explain this. Of course, we don't really know for sure why this happens or why this occurs, but they say that the more there's like the germ theory that they put into it, like the more sterile the environment you live in, the more you are prone to certain diseases. Uh, of course, that's the germ theory. Other theories they put into place is it could be that because maybe in the less developed uh, places or less developed countries there's less technology to detect disease or to diagnose disease there's not much diagnostics happening so it can't be really diagnosed the symptoms are there but it may be not be diagnosed as IBD may be diagnosed as something else of course these are just theories that have been formulated because the thing is in terms of the cost of IBD nobody still really knows for sure what's causing IBD. Now, how does IBD affect the body? One of the most common symptoms that IBD patients manifest is diarrhea. Of course, there are many associative symptoms. We have weight loss, decreased appetite, stomach pain, night sweats, fever in some cases, tiredness as well, or fatigue. But for each patient with IBD, um, the symptoms are quite unique. So sometimes they may have a, a few of these symptoms, or maybe just one symptom, just this diarrhea, or in some patients they could have a series of this uh, different symptoms. So each patient is it needs to be really assessed carefully. And you know in terms of the signs and symptoms, like for clinicians, for example, if they need to uh, conduct an assessment for these patients, they need to really explore further on the different signs and symptoms that the patient is manifesting so that they can tailor the care according to their patient because the with regards to ibd ibd is a chronic condition so it's something that's definitely long term once diagnosed um, they'll be diagnosed with this for life we don't have a cure for ibd yet of course there are medications that are a part of the management of the signs and symptoms but We don't really have, or at present, there's really no cure for IBD, and the goal of the treatments should be really in maintaining the patient in a state of remission, because with IBD, it comes, you know, there are instances where the disease can be in an exacerbated state, or sometimes we call a flare. So this is the state wherein the inflammation is really in full force and the patient feels or experiences the different signs and symptoms and there are also instances where this is really managed well and the patient is kept in a state of remission meaning they have the IBD they've been diagnosed with IBD inflammatory bowel disease is real it's there in the patient but they're not experiencing the signs and symptoms because Maybe it's managed well, Um, the medications that were given to them are working. So they're in a state of remission and that should be the goal really of the clinicians because we don't have a cure for IBD so the goal should be in tailoring the care in such a way that we are able to maintain the state of remission for the patient. Symptoms between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis because as we said earlier, IBD or inflammatory bowel disease, it has categories or types, which is Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Most of the time, they're the same. The ones that I've mentioned just earlier, like diarrhea, uh, abdominal pain, fever. But of course, there are some symptoms which tends to be more common with ulcerative colitis than Crohn's disease or some symptoms which are more common with Crohn's disease than ulcerative colitis. A very good example of that is uh, rectal bleeding. Rectal bleeding tends to be more common, or common with ulcerative colitis as compared to Crohn's disease. And in terms of nutritional deficiency, nutritional deficiency tends to be more common in patients with Crohn's disease as compared to patients with ulcerative colitis. And I think the reason for this is if we think about it, IBD, the pathophysiology, is or not really pathology, but what really happens is there's this inflammation into the large, uh, into the bowel in the gastrointestinal tract. And as we all know, the function of the gastrointestinal tract is, one of its function is for digestion and also the absorption of nutrients. And if the intestines themselves or the gastrointestinal tract is inflamed, there can be a a disruption in the absorption of nutrients. And that's what can happen sometimes when a, when Crohn's disease is in flare. There could be um, nutritional deficiency, there will be fat loss, uh, B vitamin deficiency. So this can be risky actually, that like the exacerbations can be very risky into the growth, for, especially for children. Because if the, if the child is affected with IBD, Um, Of course, we have to look at the other symptoms as well, but if the child is affected with IBD, one of the things that needs to be looked closely as well is their nutritional status because this period is a period where they need nourishment or the nutrition that they can have for nourishment and for growth. And if the bowels are inflamed, then there can be a disruption in the absorption of nutrients. Fever, sometimes this happens, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, uh, usually during severe flares, fever can happen. Nausea and vomiting, in some cases it can happen for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Anemia, in some cases can happen because as if there is um, Usually if there is, for example, inflammation into the bowel and let's say bleeding results like rectal bleeding, for example, in ulcerative colitis. So if that happens frequently, then the hemoglobin can also go low. So uh, anemia can sometimes happen in some of these patients. Complications of IBD. So this depends on the type of IBD. So for Crohn's disease... Earlier, I mentioned that in disease, the inflammation tends to to occur in the different layers of the bowel. In some cases, the inflammation can extend further to the point that there could be a, a a an abnormal channel connecting two loops, two loops of the intestine and between the intestinal wall and other organs, including the skin. So sometimes we call this as a fistula. When you know um, the the extent of the inflammation is so deep that it can sometimes form channels. Inflammation, if there's inflammation so also in this uh, in the bowel for Crohn's disease, sometimes this can lead to narrowing of the intestine. We call as a stricture, and this can lead to blockage or obstruction. Um, In some cases, other complications, uh, we have like localized collection of pus or infection or an abscess. For ulcerative colitis, as we described it earlier, uh, ulcerative colitis, the inflammation tends to occur mostly in the large bowel. And studies have shown that uh, the risk for colon cancer for ulcerative colitis is estimated to increase Uh, from time of onset so the more years that the patient experiencing the ulcerative colitis the risk also increases that's why surveillance is really key in patients with ulcerative colitis or ibd so usually in some countries uh, they have a surveillance system wherein patients undergo undergo endoscopy at regular times during their i don't know how many years uh, how many times in five years it really depends on the country because each country has a different they have a different system of surveillance but that's the thing when patients have ibd the there is a closed surveillance system to identify so that so that it can be helped so they can be so it can help identify if Are they at risk for developing colon cancer or not because the thing with colon cancer is that if they can detect this early then it's treatable but if it's detected late the cancer can metastasize and that's where the big problem can start so diagnosis with IBD is quite complex earlier I mentioned about the biopsy but initially usually um, the patient comes to clinic There is an initial evaluation that will take place. Uh, There will be an assessment of the signs and symptoms and its severity. Family history will also be collected because uh, this tends to be familial as well. Like The development of IBD tends to be familial. And laboratory stool tests may be conducted or laboratory tests. Why mention stool tests? Because there are specific tests that they usually conduct for IBD patients called the fecal calprotectin test. So fecal calprotectin is a protein in inflammatory cells that are shed in the stool. They are made by white blood cells, and they're like a thermometer for inflammation, specifically for inflammation of the the bowel. And they usually conduct a fecal calprotectin test for patients with, or for patients who who have the symptoms of IBD and they still don't really know if or if is it really IBD or not and of course they undergo certain procedures as well like colonoscopy colonoscopy is the key to diagnosis it is the best tool to see the surface of the colon location of the disease and also to obtain a biopsy Um, of course there are other tests that have been developed recently but I'll just since this is just a review of the disease We'll just stick with uh, some of these common measures that are implemented for the diagnosis of IBD. Imaging studies may also be conducted to, to study uh, if there is IBD or not. So this really is up to the physician's decision. So each patient is unique, each signs and symptoms are unique to each patient, and this is where personalized medicine comes in wherein um, it's a case-to-case basis so it's really up to the physician and also there are guidelines like in some countries they have certain guidelines that they follow like step-by-step guidelines that they follow as to how to approach patients with with signs and symptoms of IBD and how they go with the process of uh, diagnosing it so in the UK there's the NICE guidelines and in Europe there is an organization as well called the uh, European Crohn's and Colitis Organisation. They do have they develop their own set of guidelines as well for clinicians to to follow. So if you're the clinician listening to this it's always best to to look at the guidelines that applies into your country. The management of IBD is of course the, the goal the main goal for this is in maintaining remission but in order to maintain remission it's really a combination of different things it is a combination of addressing psychosocial issues because we did mention earlier that IBD may be associated to stress or the development of IBD may be because there is stress the management goals of IBD should also be in Treating the complications, treating the inflammation, relieving the symptoms, so this is where some of the medications apply. And improving their daily functioning, really. So the goal is in maintaining remission and the it's really to help them live a, a better quality of life. And maintaining a state of remission is definitely one of that. Common medications that are prescribed for patients with IBD, so usually uh, there are guidelines into this that they follow, clinicians follow guidelines, and it's always best to check the guidelines that apply into your own country, but they usually start with the more milder medications first, such as the aminosalicylates. So five aminosalicylates, they usually try, try that, and if it doesn't work, they step up to other medications like steroids, for example, because the, with IBD, it's an autoimmune disease. So it's really the body that is trying to attack a part of the body. In this case, the part of the body that is being affected is the gastrointestinal tract. One thing that I haven't mentioned earlier is that in manifestations of IBD, like in Crohn's disease, we've already differentiated this earlier, but in Crohn's disease, there tend to also have extra intestinal symptoms so extra intestinal symptoms are symptoms that are not really within the gastrointestinal tract themselves but it could be in any part of the body such as the joints or there could be the eye can be affected like inflammation in the eye area can be affected so this tends to happen sometimes in patients with Crohn's disease they have this extra intestinal symptoms now, going back to the management, I mentioned about the 5-aminosalicylates as one of the medications, then corticosteroids as one of the medications as well. So they usually try try this um, to see if it works. If it works, then great, because the aim is really to maintain the patient in a state of remission. And in some cases, some patients, for some patients, these medications may not work, so they may be given immunomodulators, immu- immu- immunomodulators like um, azathioprine. Um, but these medications are to be used with caution because usually they need to check that the patient has the enzyme to break down these medications, and that's very very important. Other medications that are also given to patients as part of the management is they may undergo an infusion uh, for like infusion of um, one of the most common ones infusion is like for Crohn's disease specifically. Um, One of the most common infusion that may be administered is infliximab, which is a biologic drug. So this is an anti-TNF or anti-tumor necrosis factor medication. So what is this tumor necrosis factor? Tumor necrosis factor alpha or TNF alpha is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. So when this is produced by the body, it can actually lead to inflammation and this sometimes is an explanation as to why inflammation occurs in patients with IBD and maybe because of the tumor necrosis factor alpha. Of course, there are many pro-inflammatory cytokines in the body. TNF-alpha is just one. And if infliximab works for this patient, then the cost might be because the body is producing the TNF-alpha T- TNF or the tumor necrosis factor alpha. And they give infliximab, which is an anti-TNF medication or anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha. Of course, there are many other types of biologic medications, but infliximab is definitely just one. In more complicated cases, uh, surgery may be performed for some patients, especially if the inflammation is very, very severe, that maybe according to clinician's decision, it can already affect uh, their day-to-day living, the nutritional status. So in some cases, surgery may be performed. Uh, they may just cut a portion of the bowel. And there are different types of surgeries. So some surgeries, uh, they may cut a portion of the bowel, they connect the ends, the two ends, or they could cut the portion of the bowel, then they, um, they, they surgically, make an opening in the form of a colostomy. So this comes in different types. And in terms of IBD management, really, the most important thing we have to consider is that we have to be holistic in our approach with IBD. Of course, there are medications that may be used to manage the IBD and hopefully put the patient in a state of remission. But the overall goal, really, is to ensure that they live a good quality of life, because they can live normal lives. IBD may be a chronic condition. It may be a condition that is lifelong, but they can still live a good quality of life with good management and holistic management, which involves addressing the psychosocial issues, the emotional issues, treating the complications, treating the inflammation, relieving them from the symptoms, and um, minimizing treatment toxicity, I would say, because some of these medications do have um, side effects as well. And um, replenishing their nutritional deficits and also improving their daily functioning. So the care really should be in a holistic manner, looking at the different dimensions of life. So there you have it. That's the review for the IBD podcast. And I hope with this episode of the podcast, you've learned something about IBD. It's such a complex disease as well as it's also an interesting one to study. Um, I've been an IBD or I was an IBD research nurse before, so this is one of my fields and expertise, and it's just nice to share something about this disease, and it's also for awareness for uh, for anyone listening as well, if, whether you're a healthcare provider or a non-healthcare provider. Um, this would be. Uh, I hope this has increased your awareness about the disease. And just for the disclaimer, so if you're a healthcare provider, so this is just, this podcast is for information purposes only and shouldn't be used as a a source for your decision making and the, the implementation of treatment for the patient. And solely the purpose of this is just for review and increasing one's knowledge about the disease, like if you're in school studying about Uh, nursing or studying a medical subject and I hope this has helped you in learning about a certain disease. So thank you very much for listening to Nurse Talks. You've been listening to Nurse Talks, a podcast about nursing, academics, study skills, health and social care. Don't forget to subscribe to Nurse Talks on Spotify, YouTube or Facebook. Just type and search Nurse Talks IG on Facebook and click like.